Welcome to the Automotive Leaders Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from leading voices in the automotive world with a mission to transform this industry together. I'm your host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales with over 35 years of experience in our beloved auto industry and a commitment to empowering fellow leaders to be their best authentic selves. Stay true to yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. Today, we're going to cover a topic that we're way overdue talking about on this podcast, and that is the subject of DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I could think of no one better to engage in that conversation than the woman who is leading the charge for DEI in the auto industry. It is, of course, Cheryl Thompson, the founder and CEO for Cadia, the Center for Automotive Diversity, Inclusion, and Advancement. Cadia was founded on the belief that the auto industry has never reached its potential in innovation and creating value because of its lack of DEI. And I think she's absolutely right on. In our conversation, we'll be talking about getting inside the minds of those C-suite executives, the pushback, and also some of the bright spots in the industry. We'll get into a deeper explanation of what DEI actually is and how you can get started on your DEI journey. All of this will be peppered with some of our own personal stories, and I warn you, Some of this content might shock you. Let's dive in. Cheryl Thompson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jan. It is great to be here. I'm such a fan, so this is a dream come true. Thank you. Thank you. Well, likewise, likewise. I absolutely love the work that you are doing in our beloved automotive industry. We both care passionately about where this industry is going, and we want to prepare it for the future. We both have very similar missions, so it's great to have you on the show today. But I'd like to start with your backstory. Now, I've heard you tell your story a couple of times, but recap for our audience, is it true that you started in the cafeteria at Ford Motor Company? Is that right? That is right. Actually, I started in the basement of World Headquarters washing dishes. That was my very first job. I had plans to go to college and do something with computers. So it was in the 80s, and computers were just coming into play, and I was really excited to do something with computers. And I ended up getting pregnant when I was 17. So those plans to go to college had to be put to the side. And I was waitressing at Big Boy. Do you remember Big Boy Restaurant? Oh, yes. (laughs) So I was a waitress at Big Boy. So that was great tip money. And I was able to support my son. And my dad, who was an engineer at Ford Motor Company, said, you know, Cheryl, if you're going to waitress, why don't you try to apply at Ford? And I thought they're never going to hire me. And my mom dropped me off in the front of World Headquarters to go apply, and they hired me on the spot, handed me an apron and said, can you start right now? 
So in the basement of World Headquarters, wearing my heels, my gray suit, pantyhose, because it's the 80s. <laughs> and do you remember the Lucille Ball episode with the chocolate coming down the conveyor belt? Yeah, yeah, I do. So trays of dirty dishes are coming down the conveyor belt, and it was really difficult to keep up. It was, you know, my first experience of kind of like a production line, <laughs> all these dishes coming down. So did that. I did get to work in the cafeteria, the coffee shop, executive dining room, penthouse. And I really got to see it, early examples of good leadership and bad leadership based on the way I was treated as a waitress. Oh, that's so true, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget waiting on Jesse Jackson. Uh, he was in for a party that was being hosted in the executive dining room. And just the way he treated me and he asked my name and he looked at me, you know, eye contact versus the leaders that were stepping over others trying to get ahead. Right. And the way I was treated reflected that. So very early lesson for me in leadership and then they were trying to recruit women and minorities into the skilled trades. I thought electrician, pipe fitter, I'm I'm all in for that. And they wanted to put me in tool and die. And I didn't know what it was at the time. I told my dad I was going to make uh, die, make tools and dye them. And he said, no, that's not what tool and die is about. <laughs> and I loved my apprenticeship. It was a four-year program and it was a, such a great foundation for engineering. And that's how I got my start into engineering. Wow. And tool and die too. Mm -hmm. I mean, there can't have been many women in tool and die back then, right? In the 80s. Not very many at all. Oftentimes I was the only one. There was there were five other women going through the program. Not everybody made it. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a, a female role model who was about 15 years my senior, who really showed me the ropes, really taught me how to show up, how to show up so people would want to help me and not push people away. I really think of her fondly. Her name was Pam. Mm, yes. Now that marked the beginning of an incredibly successful career in automotive. So what happened after that, Cheryl? Well, after that, after being an engineer for a little bit, I eventually became a supervisor. That was my first experience leading people. So I was working on the vehicle side of Ford Motor Company. I got to work in the Wixom assembly plant, making the town car Continental and the Mark 8, which was amazing. Anyone who, I, I love production. I love watching things come together. Got to spend some time in stamping plants, which I could sit and watch a progressive line, uh, stamping line, you know, for hours and hours, just watching all of that automation. And then I went over to the powertrain side and got to work with gears. Uh, so I got to learn all about all those gears that go into transmissions. I got stuck at the supervisor level for about 10 years. And I was talking to my manager and he, one of those career discussions, and he said, Cheryl, you're ready for leadership. You're ready for more. We need to start thinking about putting you into a management position. And I looked at him and I said, I don't wanna have to act like you. I didn't see any female role models. And I thought, you know, back in those days, the culture was a little bit more toxic than it is today. And I thought I was going to have to turn myself into someone I wasn't. And I did not want to do that. And I said, I don't have anyone to look up to and I don't want to have to act like you. And he was so genuine and looked at me 
He was wearing glasses and he looked over his glasses at me and he says, kid, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll try to get you some help. <laughs> so He <laughs> introduced me to the highest female ranking executive. Linda was her name. And I'm standing outside of Linda's office waiting to talk to her. And she was saying, we need to get these engineers home from launch. They've been away from their families for six months. And it was in that moment that I said, oh, my gosh, that's how I would lead. My discussion with her and and mentoring discussions after that really changed my professional life, but also my personal life. Wow, that's incredible. After that, I went into, you know, my last position at Ford Motor Company was leading all of powertrain prototype. I had a team of about 500 people, which was amazing. But I've just had this invisible force pulling me out to do something different. I kind of fell into manufacturing. I had that experience of knowing I had more to give and I felt like I wasn't being utilized as much as I could be. And I remember having a discussion with a Black gentleman that was working for me. And he was sharing with me that feeling of not being valued, not being appreciated, not being listened to, not being heard. And I thought, wow, I thought that was just women. And I realized there were so many more people that were having a similar experience. And I thought, wow, what if we could unleash that power of everyone? What could we achieve in automotive? So that is, you know, that invisible force pulling me out to do that work I do today in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the industry. You know, that force you talk about, I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel that pulling me as well. And that's one of the reasons why I left my corporate role, there's something bigger that's pulling me. And for me, it's culture transformation in the industry. But it, it it's so strong. It is. And when we talk about visions and company visions, when you've got something pulling you, right, that you're going towards and you can really feel that force and it's almost palpable, that is incredibly powerful. It is. I'm getting chills when you're talking about it. And I I remember picking up the phone before I even knew what I was doing, putting in my retirement paperwork, right? (laughs) Just Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, wow, (laughs) what am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) But then you jumped out into American Axle for a little bit. I did. I did. You know, I starting your own business, as you know, is not an easy thing. Uh, If you want any personal development. <laughs> Entrepreneurship is is the way you're going to really get that personal development. And they were looking for someone to lead their prototype organization. And I they reached out to me on LinkedIn. And, you know, quite honestly, I thought that the reputation of the company was a little bit machismo and, and very driven and type A. And I was hesitant. And I went on the interview anyways, and I really hit it off with the person that hired me. We really had a good relationship. And I've really loved my time at American Axle. Getting to see another side of the industry was so valuable. I was in that Ford bubble for 31 years. Being on the supplier side was a humbling experience, number one. And I have total respect for the engineering competency and just the things that tier one suppliers, the things that they're faced with, the challenges that they endure And they're still standing, most of them, (laughs) right? I agree. 
to really understand this industry, you have to have done some time, literally done your time mm -hmm. in the tier one supply base yes. because the, you are in a bubble and an OEM. And because of the power dynamic, you have a very slanted view and perspective of the entire industry. So I think that the fact that you actually spent time in American Axle and the way that you describe the reputation of American Axle, you're being so diplomatic and so professional and so nice. I'm just going to say I would have thought American Axle would be an absolute hellhole to work in. It is embodies all the things that I rail against in command and control. However, everything I have heard lately about American Axel is completely the other direction. And what I hear, and my network tells me, that one of the beacons, if you will, of leadership right now, or tenets of leadership in American Axel is all about D, E, and I. Yes. I'm So I don't know what you did or what the, <laughs> what you how you impacted American Axel. Well, I can't take credit for it. They had to look inside. You know, it was shortly after George Floyd was murdered that they really got serious about their journey. And a typical American Axle style went all in, right? And they have done a phenomenal job. They've made a lot of progress and they're still going. So yeah, very proud of their progress. Well, and I feel like I have to say this, if American Axle can do it, people, you can too. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to basics, shall we? DE&I is one of those terms where everybody thinks that they understand it, including me, thinks that they have a pretty good idea of what it is, but they don't, they're not a hundred percent sure, but they don't want to raise their hand and say, well, but I don't, I don't really know. So let me be that person. I don't really, really know, Cheryl. I think I know. I would love it if you could just get us all grounded on the essence of DE&I. Yes, yes. I think, first of all, this has to be defined organization by organization if the work is going to be done in an authentic way. A company first has to decide what does diversity mean to us? For some companies, it is race, ethnicity, and gender, and that's it. However, I have found having a wider circle defining diversity gets so many more people on board and there's so many invisible diversity dimensions that we don't even think about. So diversity is all of the things that make us different, race, gender, ethnicity, but also things like religion, spirituality, family status, parental status, disability status, LGBTQ, right? On and on and on. Thinking about neurodivergent. In our industry, we have a lot of engineers and scientists, and there's a lot of neurodivergence in our industry. Those are some invisible things. So diversity is everything that makes us different. And then inclusion is really valuing, listening to, respecting, and leveraging all of that beautiful diversity to contribute to the success of the organization. There's the Gallup survey that's done every couple of years about how engaged our employees, and it's something like 34% of employees are actually engaged, 16% are actively disengaged. Inclusion is really how do we engage everyone so that they can bring their full potential to the table. And then equity, this is the term that 
I think causes the most angst. And when I first got into the work, I didn't really understand the difference between equity and equality. Equality is everyone has equal opportunity, everyone is equal, everyone gets the same. And that would be great to to achieve equality. I don't know if we'll do that in my lifetime. Equity is the tool that helps us get there. So equity is all about giving people what they need personally so that they can thrive. So it could mean a flexible working arrangement for someone who is caregiving for others. It could mean special mentorship. It could mean a different educational path, a different career path. Equity is giving people what they need to succeed. I have been working with the National Defense Industrial Association, and we were doing some training courses for them. And there was a retired general who showed up every time to these sessions. And I have this quote that I have to share with you because I think it is the perfect way to describe diversity, equity, and inclusion. He said, DEI is an HR junk. It is the job of leaders. It is what we are paid to do. DEI is knowing and understanding how to maximize the capability of all of the resources at your disposal, the most important of which is the people under your care. Every time we have a conversation about diversity, the conversation ought to be turned to the opportunity for the organization. You have untapped resources that you are now deliberately working to put to good use. DEI is leadership. So that's retired General Donald Shank. And I just love that description. I love it. And I I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. It is leadership. You know, you cited the Gallup numbers. When we talk about a high-performance team, the number one trait of a high-performance team, as defined by Google in Project Aristotle uh, 2012, it's going back a ways now, but it still holds true. And that is psychological safety. First of all, I I hear you define for your team what diversity is, right? But then this inclusion piece, you've got to provide an environment for those voices to come forward. And that's the leadership part. And that's tricky, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that Google Aristotle study. We use that a lot in our training. And when we talk about psychological safety, There has to be that balance of accountability. And I know you are huge on accountability. You have your accountability lab. And so you need that balance. I talked to someone who left Google and they were sharing that, you know, it got a little bit too comfortable. There wasn't enough accountability. So there has to be that balance of accountability. When you've got high accountability and low psychological safety, you know, that is the worst because you've got that fear zone or anxiety zone. But when you can have that high psychological safety and high accountability, that's the learning zone where we want to be. And we often do a poll in our training. And even though people are working for the same leader, we see people are having different experiences because we, we are, we're just not all having that same experience at work. Some people feel that higher level of psychological safety than others. And usually it's people who are on the margins or underrepresented who feel that lower sense of psychological safety. I'm going to give you an example. And this has stayed with me. Oh, I, I, I must have given this presentation five years ago. And it was Flagstar Bank. And it was a women's group. 
And we were talking about psychological safety and we were talking about diversity in action. And this woman stood up and she says, I want to call out. And she calls the guys. I don't remember his name. He was a senior level VP in the bank, right? And she called him out and he was in the room, right? She pointed to him in the room and I'm like, oh God, what's she going to say? And she says, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you an example of of diversity in action. This is This is what this guy did. She said, I walked into a meeting, typical meeting, the senior level males are around the table at, with the physically sitting at the table. And then the people that are not ranked as high, and it's typically the women that don't feel that they have the voice are sitting in that circle around the inner circle. And she walked in or even worse, standing at the back of, at the, back of the room. So she walked into the room. He gets up and motions to her to take his seat and he physically removes himself to the outer circle. Wow, Cheryl, now that's powerful, right? That is. Oh my goodness. I I had a similar experience. I was taking a tour of Ford Blue, the marketing firm that supported Ford, and the leader of this organization was giving us a tour, showing us around and there was a staff meeting that was going on at the time. And he said, yes, I'm supposed to be in there, but um, I'm going to skip it today. And his chair was empty, sitting at the head of the table. And there was a woman who was kind of running in late. And he said, oh, take my seat. She took that seat and pulled it away from the table, put it up against the wall and sat down. And I was like, no, <laughs> right? We're so conditioned as women. Yeah, you're right. We are totally conditioned. And I remember the early days of my career when just being the girl in the room, regardless of title or experience or knowledge, you were the one that had to make the coffee, copy the blueprints and take the meeting notes. Yes. It was normal for, for somebody, for a guy to look at you and say, yeah, I love, I love two sugars and cream with that. Yes. And you wouldn't even flinch. You just get up and do it. I mean, could you imagine that happening today? That would never happen no. today. So we have made some progress, I guess. We have absolutely made some progress. <laughs> I am definitely seeing uh, rays of hope for sure. What are some of the biggest uh, pushbacks that you get? I mean, we're you and I are both very familiar with command and control leadership in the automotive industry. And these are guys, they are successful because they have emulated that command and control leadership model and it has assured their success. That's how they got to the role that they're in today. And for them to see and truly embrace this need for change is hard because in their head, they're going, well, look, I've followed this leadership model and I got to be the CEO. So I don't know what you people are talking about. <laughs> and I applaud those CEOs who are embracing a different mindset, a different leadership model and embracing DEI. But what's some of the biggest sticking points that you find out there? from these types of leaders? DEI right now is a really tricky topic. Um, the political environment that we're in right now, there's a lot of pushback. You look at the Supreme Court decisions that have been made on affirmative action and the case with the web designer not supporting a same-sex marriage. So it's an interesting time in DEI. And the biggest pushback that I see right now is... People who feel like, what about me? I matter too. Or people who on the surface don't look like they're diverse, 
but under the surface, there are those invisible diversity dimensions. And so they feel like they've been overlooked to their whole career and here they're being overlooked again. So I see a lot of that. I also see DEI not being done in the most effective way. And people who have had exposure to the blaming and shaming and some of the ineffective ways just have a bad taste in their mouth because of it. And sometimes people are a little overzealous in this work and they make other people afraid to make a mistake. So when we think about microaggressions, you know, microaggressions are making someone unintentionally feel less than. And there are a lot of people that are afraid to even compliment someone because they're afraid it may be considered a microaggression. So it's just a really tricky time right now in this area. But I think that the biggest pushback is people who have felt slighted or some disadvantage over their career, and they're thinking, wow, you know, when will it ever be my turn? Wow, that's interesting. Now, I'd like to go a little deeper on something you said. You said DE&I being effective, you know, an effective approach or effective strategy. Can you go a little deeper on that? What is an effective DE&I strategy? Well, I think when a company is first starting off, it is a lot of learning and awareness. It is self-reflection. It is kind of looking in the mirror and looking at, you know, how you got to where you're at, who helped you along the way, and looking at others who maybe don't share the advantages that you have, the network that you have, the power that you have, and saying, well, what about them? How how are they going to advance in the organization? So I think in the beginning, it's a lot of that reflection, self-reflection, organizational reflection, conversations about equity and inclusion. It's funny, when I first started this work, I did a lot of training. I had a lot of PowerPoint slides <laughs> and it was a lot of me talking, talking, talking. And I have found to really be effective, we have to engage people in these conversations and have them share a little bit of their diversity story. What has gotten in the way of their advancement? Share a time when you were rudely interrupted in a meeting or overlooked or ignored, or maybe have them share a time when they realized that they were the perpetrator of a microaggression or making somebody feel less than. It's really then that we can start to do the work of the systems that need to change. Eventually, we want to get to the systemic changes that need to happen. These systems that we're working inside of right now were built 50, 60, 70 years ago by white men for white men. And let's face it, the demographics are changing rapidly. And so we have to think about new structures um, for how we manage talent, how we attract talent, how we source talent how we assess performance, and how we set people up for advancement. So really looking deep into succession planning and maybe putting some things into your systems to support that. So I'll give you an example. When we think about diverse candidate slates, an organization can put that policy into place, but 
the first time that there is a risk or there is a need for speed to fill that role, if a policy is not in place that says you must do this, they're going to bypass it. But having a system in place that makes you go to a high level, maybe executive VP for a deviation, it's going to make you try harder to find that diverse slate of candidates. The early part is the learning and awareness. Then you move to having these discussions. And then it's what are the systems that need to be changed so that everyone can have an opportunity to thrive and succeed. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And it's the idea of building the pipeline, right? Starting the pipeline early. I love it when you say to somebody, say to a senior level person, well, you know, why didn't you fill that with a diverse candidate? And they're like, well, I did, but none applied. Uh Uh-huh. And that's their like, get out of jail free card, right? They say, well, we did, we opened it up, but we couldn't find anybody qualified. They didn't, they just didn't have the qualifications that we needed. Wrong question, wrong answer. The question is, what are you doing to fill the pipeline so that when this opportunity arises, you have diversity already baked into your pipeline right from day one? You know, why aren't you out at schools, colleges? As as you know, I'm on the advisory board for Wayne State for supply chain management. So much talent, so much diverse talent. Why aren't you people tapping into that? Like now, not when you need to fill the position and then you're all frantic because, you know, in supply chain, right? You're all frantic. Oh my gosh, I got to have a commodity manager for this commodity. They must have had experience buying this particular narrow, tiny little commodity. Oh my gosh, if we keep thinking like that, we're never <laughs> going to get out of this. <laughs> You're absolutely right. That pipeline is so, so important. We do a little work with Wayne State as well and such talent inside of Wayne State. I spoke not too long ago for Society of Women Engineers, an audience of 750 female engineers. Do not tell me <laughs> there is no pipeline out there. There absolutely is. But it is it is difficult sometimes, and it takes effort to go find those people and to convince them sometimes. I'll just go back to the story I was telling you about my first management position where I said, you know, I don't think this is for me. I didn't think I was ready. Let me tell you, when I got into that room, Jan, <laughs> And I sat around with the other leaders. I was like, really? Like, I thought y'all had it all figured out. Yeah. (laughs) They they didn't. They didn't. (laughs) And so we sell ourselves short. But if that manager didn't push me and challenge me and say, I do think you're ready and I'm going to get you that help, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting today. So it does take effort and going that extra mile. And like you said, building those relationships with all of these sources of talent so that when you do have a position open, you can bring them in and then keep an eye on them and keep developing them so that when there is a leadership position open, they are ready. Yeah, ready to rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about Kadia. I was honored to be on the guest list for your very first event. And that was several years ago. But tell us a little bit about what Kadia does and your goals and objectives and your mission. 
Yes. Uh, so Cadia stands for Center for Automotive Diversity, Inclusion, and Advancement. And if you Google Cadia, you may find it's also an underground gold mine in Australia. So I just love that because I think there's a gold mine for individuals coming into this industry because it's very lucrative and interesting, but there's a gold mine for companies and organizations when they can diversify their talent base. Our mission is to double the number of diverse leaders in the industry by 2030. We have a 4C model. I love frameworks. So the first C is leadership commitment. And we um, love to support leaders in their commitment to DEI. I love it when I can get inside of a C-suite and talk to the CEO and that entire leadership team, because that is really where it needs to start. So leadership commitment is one. Systemic change, which I was talking about earlier, that really has to happen for this to be uh, sustainable. Inclusive cultures, as you know, we can do all of the recruiting that we want and hiring of diverse talent, but if the culture is not inclusive, they're not going to stay. We're a membership organization. We have monthly roundtables to support DEI practitioners, whoever's leading DEI within the company, so that we can share best practices and lessons learned, and sometimes just hold space because this work can sometimes be very taxing and emotionally draining. So sometimes we're holding space to listen to people and, and find out how we can support them. As you know, we have something called Cadia Connects. You were one of our very, very first guests when we started Cadia Connects. We were doing that weekly at the time. That was right when the pandemic started. And every Tuesday at noon, we were having these community calls and now they're monthly, but they're open to anyone and they're free. We often encourage people within that are our members to share those recordings, those sessions with everyone inside the company because they're little DEI topics that we're talking about, you know, things like neurodiversity, LGBTQ pronouns, gender identity, gender expression, inclusive benefits. And so we were really big on education and helping people put together a strategy um, so that they can start DEI and they can really sustain it and make it hit all areas of the company. It's not just about talent. It is about product development and innovation. It's about marketing and communications. It's about customer service. It hits just every area of a company's business. And I think there's a lot of leaders out there who know that and they know it's the right thing to do, but they have a hard time drawing the line to the numbers so how is this going to impact the bottom line of my business? Because that's a typical automotive approach. What? How do you respond to that, Cheryl? You must be hit up with that question a million times. You know, I don't, I I hear it sometimes, and and there's all kinds of data out there. Deloitte has a lot of data. PwC. BC, Boston Consulting Group, a lot of data out there talking about how companies are more profitable, more innovative, more creative, and they put numbers to it when they have more uh, diversity on the leadership team, it, both in gender, ethnicity, and race. So that's one side of it. But the other side of it is I, I truly go back to that engagement piece, really having everybody all in. <laughs> and when we can really think about 
creating cultures that are inclusive and where people feel like they belong, it's one of those intangible benefits often. It's it's something you really can't measure, but it is the right thing to do. And if you want the most effective, productive, high-performing team, it's really something that you want to take a look at. And if you make those small little moves about being more inclusive, getting to know each of your team members, what motivates them, what is going to help them show up at their best, you will start to see those benefits yourself. Just with those small little inclusive behaviors, looking at yourself and and saying, boy, you know, what what's activating or triggering me here and what can I learn from that? So doing a little self-reflection as well. As I look back on my corporate career in my last role, so corporate VP of supply chain for a tier one, we had a global leadership team within supply chain, and we would have two offsite leadership meetings a year. And honestly, Cheryl, that was probably the time that I enjoyed the most, preparing for those meetings and having those meetings. You talk about creating space, providing that holding space for people. That was the space. And to look around the room and see the diversity, because you, I mean, you had people coming from different countries, but you had all kinds of diversity in there, right? You had age, you had gender, you had ethnicity, all facets of diversity were in that room. And sometimes there were beliefs that people had, you know, you tell stories in your head about somebody, oh, but that's because they're from country X, you know, or or that's because, yeah, they just do it a different way. and uh, But all of these things form this wonderful fabric of culture. And we have to learn to pull these gold threads through this fabric because they're there. Yeah. So having these people in the room is one thing because that that's the fabric, but pulling that gold thread through. And once you can do that as a leader, and then you see people connecting and taking time to understand each other's positions and working towards a solution and getting excited about a vision and a mission, and they're all in, oh, oh, that's it. That's what makes me happy. Yes, me too. Me too. I love that. I love that. It it is very, very powerful when you can be in an environment like that and you can see that kind of, I, I see it as energy, that energy flow. Yes. yes. And imagine what that would do to a company's bottom line. Imagine what that would do to innovation. If every person in that room felt that they could have their voice heard, put their ideas forward and know that you are not going to look at them and say, oh, well, that's stupid. Or, you know, you're an idiot. Or we tried that before and it didn't work. So why don't you just shut up? Or, you know, here you go again. You keep trying these things and they keep failing. And so now we're going to fire you. If we think like that, we're never going to get innovation. We have to create this safe space for voices to come forward, or we're not going to get the innovation that, quite frankly, our industry demands. Our industry is moving so fast. We're all about the product. We're all about ice to bev, EV, look at my latest EV offering. We're very quick to trot out what we're doing in the EV space, but not so quick to talk about what we're doing on the people side. And I'll quote Stephen Covey, who said, you cannot win in the marketplace without also winning in the workplace. And I think we got to speed it up, don't you, Cheryl? 
I do. I do. Absolutely. I, I don't know why it's so difficult to talk about the people thing and to focus on the people thing over technology. People are our biggest assets, and that's how we get the work done. So I absolutely agree. We need to focus on the people thing. When I talk to people who are considering leaving a company or have left a company, it always comes down to, I had more to offer and they were not challenging me or taking advantage of what I had to offer. Or, you know, I just heard a story not too long ago about a production worker coming forward with a big cost savings right? Who's closer to the product than the production worker? And this person came up with a a big cost savings idea and he was ignored and and this guy left the company. People matter. Yeah, there it is. People matter. Now, if a company is out there, Cheryl, and they're listening to this and they're thinking, I really need to to get on this. I really need to understand more about diversity, equity, and inclusion. How would you recommend? How do, how should they get started? Well, there are so many great resources out there, a lot of podcasts out there. I would recommend doing some self-learning at first, self-reflection, getting to understand a little bit about what this is all about, because it does seem intimidating and a little scary. And then reaching out to an organization like ours where you can be in community with others that are doing the work and hear some of the lessons learned that companies um, have have captured through their journey. So, you know, we have our monthly roundtable. We also have our monthly Cadia Connects, which somebody can just kind of observe You know, don't even have to have your camera on, just listen. So just start getting some exposure to these topics. That's how I would recommend getting started. It's great if you can have um, senior leadership support. I like to have the top down and bottom up, kind of like the sandwich approach. It can't just all be top down because you need that buy-in from the working level. They want to be able to contribute as well. So things fall flat if it's just top down. And if it's only bottom up, things cannot be sustained. You'll run out of steam. Other priorities come up and it's just not sustainable. I think it's important to have uh, a senior leadership discussion on this, but also form some type of diversity council with a healthy mix of different people in different leadership levels, thinking about race, gender, ethnicity, right? Getting those differences in the way we look at things, different perspectives, and looking at what is the one thing that we want to improve. So let's say we want to improve representation of women in leadership as an example. Okay, great. What are the things that are getting in the way of that? Obstacles, barriers. Okay, let's name those. And then Okay, number two, what are some things strategically we can put in place to improve that? So focusing on that outcome, what's the problem we're trying to solve is really, really important. Otherwise, you can get twisted up in all of these things that you think you should be doing, and it's a whole lot of activity. And at the end of the day, it comes out as performative. Great advice. Now, time for the fun stuff. You ready? I'm ready. Most embarrassing moment in your career? (gasps) Ooh, the most embarrassing moment in my career is when I got up to speak in front of 
uh, a, a whole organization not having practiced. And I totally flubbed it up and froze. And I was, j- it was just so embarrassing. So I think that's why I over-prepare now because of that one experience. And I remember my boss looking at me and he's like, uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't know you were presenting. You should have told me you were going to present. We could have practiced, you know? So that was the, the most embarrassing moment. Oh my gosh. That's a good one. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll share with you mine. Cause it feels yeah. a little off, you know, it's a little unfair to ask you to share and then I don't <laughs> share. Right. Cause I just thought about this, um, just the other day. I was working at uh, GKN down in North Carolina and I was production unit manager working on the shop floor and I was fairly new and I said, uh, okay, I want to do a tour of Third Shift and everybody knows all the crazy people work Third Shift. We love you, (laughs) Third Shift people, but, you know, and you're my people, but, you know, okay. So the Third Shift supervisor's there, his name was Doug and uh, off we went and in those days, I wore steel toe cap boots and blue, like blue khaki pants and, and a GKN stripy shirt, uniform shirt with my name mm-hmm. on it, right? So it's always because I wanted to be part of the shop floor. I never wanted that tag of being management. So off we go. We do the tour. And Doug's a little, you know, he's a little bit like the new boss, right? So he's trying to get to know me. And I said, so how'd it go? I said, yeah. D- did we do okay out there? What What do you think? What do you think? Was there anything I should have done? I didn't do what? Give me some feedback. And he's like, well, and I thought, oh, what? What? I said, well, just tell me because I, I don't know how to say this. And I said, oh, Doug, please just tell me what? And he says, well, you're flying low. My zipper was <laughs> undone the entire time. <laughs> and he didn't tell me. Oh no, no. That's embarrassing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Favorite band. Who'd you like to listen to? Oh my gosh. I just saw Santana in com- concert at oh, Pine Knob. Really? Uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, so good. Oh my goodness. I was in heaven just listening to that music and dancing and looking at Santana, who is 75 years old now. Are they really? Oh, incredible. I love music. I also got to see Dave Matthews the same week. (laughs) The stars aligned and when we got tickets to to both concerts. But I love music. I love to dance. And Santana right now is what I've been vibing to. That's great. What's your favorite app on your phone, your social media? What's your favorite one? Ooh. Hmm. I guess LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, Instagram is fun. If I'm looking at apps on my phone, Candy Crush is something that I love. I love, you know, if I'm just sitting there trying to unwind after a long day, it's just that mindless activity that allows me to just kind of breathe. You know what? You share that with Carrie Yule. Oh, Carrie, yes. Chief Procurement Officer of GE GE Healthcare, right? Yes. Uh, and when I interviewed Carrie, and as you know, we, those of us who know Carrie, we know her. She is the ultimate professional. She knows her craft. She's very good at what she does, right? And I asked her a question about what she likes to do in the morning to get her day started. You know, a lot of people, I think, expected her to say, you know, I run five miles or I push iron, or I go to some boot camp for an hour or I do yoga or something, right? And she says, 
I like to do Candy Crush. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that because, you know, from a leadership perspective, the vulnerability that she showed to admit that was great. But it's her thing. It's She really enjoyed it. It helps her get her mind in gear in the morning. And that's what she loves to do. So it's a thing, Cheryl. I love it. (laughs) To all of our automotive leaders out there listening to this podcast today, close it up with one piece of advice that you would give them. You've been doing this for a few years now. One piece of advice to leaders in automotive, what would that be? Well, looking at your authentic traits of leadership, I would recommend leaders take a look at that and focus in on the one of being self-aware. Ah, yes. Right? I think that leaders, particularly leaders who have been around for a while, think that they know everything, that they think they've got it all figured out, and nobody has it all figured out. So taking a step back, being a little humble, listen, be open-minded, and be self-aware. Recognize how you're making people feel. Recognize how you're treating people. You know, I love that Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you did and what you said. They will never forget how you made them feel. So self-awareness and just taking a look inside would be my recommendation. You know what, Cheryl? Of all the people I've interviewed... Very few people actually select self-awareness. I think you're absolutely right on. You have to be aware of who you are and where those knowledge gaps are and develop more of that growth mindset than fixed mindset to open yourself up, to be able to do this. And to all of our beloved automotive leaders out there, if we are going to transform this industry and we are going to do it, It's not all about the product. It is about the people. And it starts with self-awareness. I think you are absolutely right on. Thank you for that. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for that amazing list of traits. It is so well done. I really encourage people to take a look at that. Well, thank you. And Cheryl, it has been an absolute pleasure and a lot of fun having you on the show. Jan, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Authentic Leadership